yeah, we I've spent a lot of time talking about Danny Boy at different times. Um, uh, I was because I was in officer. One of the things I did was actually debrief everybody afterwards, trying to find out exactly what had gone on. Um, and um, I've spoken to local press about it, and of course, I've spoken twice in court at length. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. We return our focus to local government and meet Councillor James Rands. James had a very active regular career and, like our host Johnny, served in the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. In fact, James continues his service in the reserves today. It is this desire to serve his community that comes across in this episode, which he does in his local authority. We also touch on James's involvement at the now famous Battle of Danny Boy in Iraq, and how he too was dragged through the courts facing vexatious allegations. It's time for you to meet our guest. It's absolutely brilliant to be able to welcome another local government representative, uh, this time from the Liberal Democrats and our first member of the Tigers, my old regiment, James Rands. How are you, James? I'm, I'm very good, Johnny. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm disappointed I'm the first, first Tiger to be on, but um, hopefully there'll be more in the near future. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure that once uh, fellow Tigers hear your story and hear um, about my experience in politics too, that we can inspire other people from the infantry to stand up and serve again. But on that, obviously, um, I've already alluded to that, that you were a member of the, and still are, a member of the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about your military service and why you joined the army in the first place? Well, yeah, my, my reasons for my first interest in the army was really childish. I was three years old and I watched the Iranian embassy siege. And I said to my mum, I want to do that when I grow up. And she thought, well, that, that won't happen. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, I was just army balmy as a kid. I, I was in the cadets. Uh, I was obsessed with it. I was probably quite boring actually. Um, and uh, when I went to university, I joined the officer training corps and I actually had a bit of a wobble because it, I thought, yeah, I didn't really enjoy this. Um, so I quit and I joined the Honourable Artillery Company the following year and, and really didn't look back. Um, so I uh, went to Sandhurst in two, 2000, I think, two, yeah, 2000, um, and uh, passed out August 11th, 2001. So obviously 30 or 31 days later, or exactly one month later, we had 9-11. Um, we'd all been prepping for... Uh, yeah, the tail end of we knew it was going to be the tail end of Northern Ireland, and yeah, lots of sort of Balkan deployments, and of course, it was just a completely different world. Um, I was uh, I went to the first battalion, which is Armoured Infantry, um, rather than light roll, uh, which is if you're a bit of a fatty like me, that's quite a good good thing. Um, and um, first tour out in Kosovo as platoon commander, um, 
That was good fun. Did uh, fire strike in Northern Ireland, which was surreal. Um, uh, did a deployment down to Macedonia. Then um, I was due to go to RHQ, and we were warned off uh, that we were going to Iraq for what would become te- uh, known as Telic 4. Um, CEO called me in for an interview, asked me... Um, asked me some very strange questions. He actually asked me, um, so James, I hear you're weird. Is that true? "Um, Well, I've got a jacket like in the matrix. Does that weird? He said, yeah, that's perfect. And weirdly, I got the interview on that. So I was then made the IO. Um, Yeah. The rationale was you have to be completely honest with the CEO if you're going to be the IO. And um, I spent a lot of the rest of my career in intelligence. Um, I uh, did, we did tell it for as the officer, did about half a Telex 6, uh, went to teach at Chicksands. It is weird that we never crossed I know. the military. It, we should have done, logically. Um, and um, from there, I did a couple of years with the Dutch Army. Um, was adjutant up in Kabul of the UK leadership training team, staff college. Uh, sorry, which way around was it? Uh, yeah. I did a tour out with the US Marine Corps as um, an int officer. Um then Staff College, uh, spent some time at the ARC, and then um, commanded um, Y Fire Support Company in the 1st Battalion, uh, which is great. Um, finished off my regular career at CAST, um, and um, I left um, thinking I was going to leave all that behind me, and within about six months, I, I wanted I wanted back. I didn't want back in the regular army, but I wanted back in the army. I wanted back in the regiment. And um, so now I command um, B, the Royal Sussex Company, down in Brighton uh, with the reserves, 3rd Battalion. Um, so that's, that's the outline anyway. Wow. I think that reads as almost like a CV many of us from our generation will identify with, all of those tours, those experiences. And as you say, it's really weird that our paths didn't cross because I too served for a short stint with um, 1PWRR just before university and obviously now work within uh, the military intelligence world as well and that Mm. Chick Sounds connection. Uh, But you were at a period of our military history, probably the most high intense, highest kinetic uh, and busy period that the British Army has experienced in in modern times. Um, And most famously, of course, that Iraq tour and Awamara and the the now um, well-known story brought to life recently through Brian Wood MC um, around the Battle of Danny Boy. Um, I mean, are you comfortable talking about that? And are, are you any memories from that time? Ish. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yeah, we. I've spent a lot of time talking about Danny Boy at different times. Um, uh, I was because I was in officer. One of the things I did was actually debrief everybody afterwards, trying to find out exactly what had gone on. Um, and um, I've spoken to local press about it, and of course, I've spoken twice in court at length. I think seven hours cross examination the first time, eight hours wow. the second time. Um, and. Uh, Still, I'm still wary about saying too much just because any perceived contradiction was picked up over those years. It was, it was a for those who don't know, the a lawyer called Phil Shiner picked up allegations of um, uh, which were originally that we abducted civilians off the battlefield, um, tortured and murdered them. Um, and it was bollocks, obviously. Um, in fact, he's the evidence bundle that he presented, um had a number of different accounts of, of what was supposed to have happened. And one included um, 
prisoners being put up against the wall and executed by firing squad. Another one was people being stabbed and tortured to death. And you know, it's like, no one's no one's arguing that uh, arguing anything other than the fact that all of the prisoners were held in one place. So this they can't both be true, can they? It's, there isn't really anything here. Um, one of the things that happened to me, I I'd, um, photographed the enemy dead after the battle, and um, it turned out that um, the when I photographed them, their they, pictures were time-stamped electronically. Um, so those those pictures became quite key evidence. Um, now, in the intervening time, we'd classified all of that as secret. It was all on my own personal IT, uh, which is you'll appreciate and you'll appreciate about the most is, is not good, particularly if you want to have a career in intelligence. So I destroyed my, uh, when the computer broke, I destroyed it, which left me pretty open. I mean, I, I looked extremely dodgy. There's no getting around that. Um, however, we went over it in court twice and, and then yeah, one set of judges and then another judge were, were yeah, quite happy that it all kind of made sense, actually, as dodgy as it looked. Um, but I, I became the, the one of the focal points of the accusations, which was not much fun. I mean, I, I actually don't hold a grudge against Shiner for doing that because I was the logical target. I mean, if I'd been on his side, I, I'd have done very much what he did. Um, what I do hold a grudge against him for was going after guys that were sort of clearly suffering from PTSD and trying to put them on the stand. Um, I mean, in some ways, I'm quite grateful that it was it was me that got that focal point because it, I'm just a little bit better equipped to deal with a barrister than than some of the lads who you know maybe didn't even finish school. Um, one thing, I mean, <laughs> one of the things that happened during that whole pe- period was that um, a lot of my mi- military friends who are quite right wing or certainly more right wing than I was thought it was absolutely hilarious that me as a bit of a lefty as they saw it <laughs> was getting prosecuted <laughs> by you know, Phil Shiner, this activist lawyer. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, there, there, were, there were a few comments about what's it like being turned on by your own? And of course, yeah, I'm a liberal, I'm not a socialist, but yeah, it's like, I'm still in the military. I was still quite a way over to the left uh, of, a, of a lot of, a, of a lot of people. Um, but one thing really got me during this process was that Phil Shiner submitted something to court, which um, I think was actually accepted, which was the suggestion that because we were the military, we were required to um, prove that we hadn't done certain things. And that was just fundamentally wrong. And that that really pissed me off. That. Uh, and it has shifted the way I look at a lot of these things. I mean, when we have conversations about um, people like Shamima Begum, um, yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the one impulse, which is, yeah, she, she, she chose where she was going. Yeah, she's a terrorist. I, yeah, as a military man who's been fought in that region, she's just a target. Because once she surrendered, she's not. And she has to have the same, she's a British citizen, she has to have the same legal protection as everyone else because if we don't extend that, if we don't extend those liberal values and those freedoms, those rights to everybody, then they're, then they're worthless. Um, if you can pick out an individual, whether it's because they're the military or whether because you know, they have fought with ISIS and say we're going to rob them of their rights, then there is no stopping that. that 
um, that will extend um, to to other groups who will be selected based on their popularity or otherwise. Um, so that, in some ways, the whole process actually solidified some of my some of my values um, in a way that perhaps people wouldn't have expected. Wow. Well, well, thank you so much for being so generous by sh- you know sharing that with us uh, because you know, it must be difficult. And for those of us that have observed, observed it, it's been difficult to, to see as well. But, you know, clearly you went through that process, exonerated in the courts um, as well. And you're continuing serving, which is an absolute delight to see uh, as an army reservist officer in your regiment. It's absolutely phenomenal to see. So there's clearly something about service that runs through your veins because not only you know serving your country, but now serving in your community as well as an extent, extension of that. So what is it about service that particularly resonates with you? Um, and, why, and what are those skills that you may have taken from military life over into political life too? I think um, I mean, for military service, uh, it, it's pretty good fun most of the time. Um, I mean, there are low points like being in the dock at, you know, the, the high courts of justice, but most people don't have to deal with that. Um, I, I like being part of a team. I think um, a lot of us do. There's, um, there's some uh, there's some work done by psychologists about the military which suggests that most of us, when we join, are actually quite introverted. We want to disappear into this big group. I was talking about this yesterday with someone. It's really weird about it being introverted. But yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, I, so the, the suggestion was that um, we we like the idea of all wearing the same clothes so we don't stand out and all sort of just blending into this team. And then the army decides that certain people amongst us actually need to lead and you go, you're going to become an extrovert now. Um, <laughs> is, I don't know how true it is, but I, mean, I do like being part of a team. I'm, I, yeah, when you're, I think there's no, no better feeling really than when you're part of a team where everyone's pulling in the same direction, where everyone's got the same common goal and everyone's just giving, everyone is doing their the very best. They're at the top of their game. And I think Telic 4 was, was very much that sort of a campaign. We were, we were very lucky to pull the, the right combination of people together. Cause it's not just about having the best. It's about having people who complement each other's skill sets. So actually if you, if you pulled, um, a headquarters from across the British Army of just the very best. I mean, you probably still have got Matt Mayer as the CEO, but I think the rest of us would probably, other people would have been selected. Um, but I don't think it would necessarily have worked as well because I think the egos would have clashed. People would have, it's a completely hypothetical, but I think yeah, people would not necessarily have complimented each other in the way that we did. Um, uh, so to be part of that was, was really fantastic. Um, and yeah, soldiers are a lot of fun to be around. Um, even when they're even when they're misbehaving, they're generally pretty good fun. Um, and you get to do a lot of good, useful things. Um, and I remember in our, our first tour, one of the things we did was raid what was called the, the Sunny Hills Massage Parlor. Um, I assume Sunny Hills was named after that the place in the bill, but it was this was <laughs> clearly not a massage parlor. Um, and um, we liberated six or seven, I think, women who'd been trafficked. Um, that's pretty good. I mean, I wasn't directly involved in the raid. I think I was sat in the ops room com- controlling it um, at the time. But but that's a pretty good feeling to be able to do those sorts of things. And, yeah, we um, we did prevent uh, 
what could have become a massacre in, in Kosovo um, by just holding back some police who were going to get carried away. Yeah, that that's good. Yeah, those are things that you, you, you know, take to your grave. Um, when it comes to local government, I, I, there's the really, really arrogant sounding answer, which is I think that if you've got the ability to make plans, to make decisions, to... Um, to really help, you've probably got a duty to put yourself forward and put yourself into the picture. And I know that does sound arrogant. Um, it, it, yeah, it, 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 it sounds like you got some, you know, some sort of messiah complex or something. But after uh, seventeen years regular service, yeah, you have picked up a lot of skills. Um, you can analyse a problem in a way that is not actually that common. It's sometimes difficult when you're in the military to realise that some of the skills that you you treat uh, you take for granted are actually quite rare. Um, we recently had one of my um, one of my residents um, spoke to somebody else borough council about planning um, planning from a sort of military point of view, and he taught the seven questions. And people were blown. Yeah, you know, some people were like, oh yes, yeah, I remember doing some management course. But a lot of people were blown away. They go, oh, this is really good. This is really good. Thinking about what you need to achieve and then how you achieve it. This is, I mean, this is what we tell, we teach Lance Corporals this. This is not, you know, this is not complex <laughs> stuff. But actually, it, it, it is quite an unusual skill set. And yeah, as, uh, um, you'll have done the same thing. You, know, you take um, conventional military skills, particularly in intelligence, things like um, intelligence preparation, battle, battlefield or battle space, <laughs> and then turn it into intelligence preparation in the environment. Those sorts of skills actually do translate. I mean, they translate a little bit better to campaigning than to necessarily, you know, being a count, active councillor. But but picking that together, and also lots of um, possibly soft skills like learning what to focus on, um, learning you know when to when to pay attention, when not to, you know, learning how to learning how to listen to people's problems because obviously there's a as a platoon commander, as a company commander, you're quite often dealing with people who are, um, yeah, if they're in your office, it's either because they've done really well on a course or because something has gone quite badly wrong. And then you've got to get that information out of them. Um, that That is a sort of useful skill set for talking to your residents and finding out what it, you know, what is the core of the problem. So I think one of the things we need to remember is that when, by the time people come to you, They've probably already tried a few more, you know, conventional ways of dealing with a problem, and now they're pretty upset. They're beside themselves. They they are they haven't they are not maybe as focused as, as you'd want them to be. So that that's a skill set which you get in plenty of other professions as well: teaching, nursing, um, uh, you know, care, care workers. Yeah, you know, it's not unique to the military, but those sorts of skills are really useful. Um, and I think. For me, being in, in local government is it's often very frustrating. Um, I live in a place where the Tories have been in power for 25 plus years. It, it's a pretty stagnant uh, yeah, uh, governing group. Um, we didn't quite make the breakthrough this year that we'd hoped to, so that they, they, they've clung on to 24 or 48 seats. There's a, um, there's just an inertia there. You know, it's difficult to get things done. That all gets frustrating. Um, but we've all dealt with stuff like that before, if we're honest. Um, and 
sometimes you get to do some good stuff. Um, I've managed to get through a near miss register. Um, the council now runs one of those, so actually, our yeah, we've got locals are able, local residents are able to. Uh, well, in fact, not just local residents, anyone who's in the area can report um, those accidents that almost happened. It's something that we have in the military, something that have a lot of heavy industries. Um, and it will take a while for that to bed in and yeah, we'll see how effective it is. But potentially that could save a couple of lives. Um, we'll never know, but getting something like that through in the face of opposition is really rewarding. Um, that's really good. Um, got through a motion in, in council uh, three, four weeks ago um, to protect um, local sports facilities as well. Um, there's in the national planning policy framework, there's, there's rules which state that um, if we if we develop a sports site, we have to provide equal or better um, facilities elsewhere. Um, but the, main, yeah, the first thing I got to do was to actually remind everybody that that's actually in the national planning policy framework, or, or inform them for the first time. Um, but then got got the council to sign up to um, to endeavouring to. Um, couldn't quite get a 100% commitment, but I could get them to sign up to take all reasonable measures to ensure that those facilities were in place before we moved the club. So um, we potentially say, oh, it sounds a bit, I'm over-egging what I've done, but it potentially saved the, the, the target shooting club and actually it may have some real benefits for some of the other clubs. So actually it's just, that's, that's good. We've done you know done some good stuff for the community um and we've really actually helped you know make make for a better town uh, and borough so um that's that's rewarding um yeah it's good yeah yeah oh, well that's that's amazing that um, that tangible output of the change that you can affect in your local communities is why i'm such an evangelist for local government yeah. which is why i want members of our community to stand up and serve again um and you know i don't think it's um arrogant um at all to say about that duty bound of stepping forward and serving again um in fact it's something that i want all of us to do whether that's in local government or volunteering uh, it's in our dna of stepping forward and and serving so i think the way in which you've described it has been is is a is a brilliant case study for anyone listening to the show to then think about well how can i make an impact in my community too but you've already alluded to something there as well that it can be quite difficult being in opposition and you know you try your best campaigning and absolutely those transferable skills from the military i've used human terrain analysis in campaigning <laughs> to get <laughs> to, to get into the weeds of a community and really understand what the drivers and the people and the the atmospherics and everything in a community uh, but as a lib dem you know there's just one liberal democrat um, mp with military service and that's a guest of the show jamie stone and so what more could the Lib Dems do to engage with the military community to inspire them to stand up and serve again as Liberal Democrats? Well, we've, we've been more successful, I suspect, than people realise. Um, and I think a lot of that is the legacy of Paddy Ashdown. So at the last election, I believe it was 11 ex-bootnecks who actually stood um, for election as MP. Wow. Well, you don't yeah. get you don't get a better role model than Paddy Ashdown, do you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, quite. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. I remember him coming into 
staff college, and apparently he doesn't particularly like introductions. So one of the Royal Marines got, um, got up and uh, got up and said, um, "Yeah, he doesn't like introductions." So uh, Paddy Ashdown, um, ex leader of Lib Dems, ex bootneck, bit of a legend. Sums it up, really. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, we, we, we've got, there's a, there's a group we've got um, going at the moment, which is Lib Dem Friends of the Armed Forces, uh, which we hope to get, I forget, I forget the correct term, associated or officiated or whatever it is, yeah, acknowledged as an official Lib Dem group. Um, but I think one of the things to, to say is that, yeah, if you, if you are um a service person who is liberal or is centrist or he's not happy with the, the other two parties he wants to serve. Um, the Lib Dems is a welcoming place. Um, there's sometimes that perception that um, you know, parties that are you know, left of the Conservatives are sort of anti-military. Obviously, there's the, you know, Shiner was, was labelled as a liberal by a lot of people, which is, hmm, calling. Um, but, you know, that that sort of anti-military streak really isn't there. Um, uh, yeah, it's come along. Yeah, you know, go to your go to your local party, make contact, um, go out, um, knock on some doors, talk to people, get that experience because actually, you will find that it's yeah we're we're we are a pragmatic party and you, your skills will be valued um, and there's there's plenty of scope to. Um, there's plenty of scope to, to, to get yourself elected into local government. Um, obviously, we haven't done quite as well nationally. Um, but we'll have 130 seats next election. We, 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 we know that for a fact. Um, but, yeah, there's, 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 yeah there's, there's the opportunities there to, um, you know, to make a difference. It's fantastic to hear about the uh, Lib Dem Friends of the Armed Forces standing up as well. And I look forward to engaging with with you on that because um, mm. we've seen that in uh, certainly the Labour Friends of the Armed Forces uh, as well as the Conservatives as well. Uh, those groups are, in, are so important within the parties uh, to be able to have that kind of network and that central mass of like-minded people from the Armed Forces community within those political parties. So that's, that's fantastic de- development there, James. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I know there's a point um, Johnny Mercer made when a meeting we were both at that um, the debate when it comes to the, when it comes to defence, the debate will not be elevated unless we have veterans on all sides of the house, uh, uh, yeah, engaged. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's a sad truth that defence is not a priority for any of the major parties. Um, it's not it's not a vote winner um so if you want to shape policy if you want to shape if you're worried about the way defense is going then you know get get involved you don't even necessarily have to stand for election to do that you know if you're part of the party apparatus you can start feeding ideas and, and suggestions in and, and help do some of the, you know do some of the donkey work of trying to get policy you know written you know even if it's just even if it's just spell checking it um, you know, it, these, these things need to happen. Um, so I think um, there's there's plenty there's plenty to do, um, and yeah, we sit, the obviously Labour and the Conservatives don't work together. Um, it's pretty rare to find them, yeah, yeah, you know, to working together. I'm sure that they, I'm sure in Parliament, many of them speak to each other and are mates, but. Um, 
whilst we're unlikely to form a government in our own right anytime soon, we we do talk to all sides, and you can have a degree of influence there um, that you maybe more than you expect. Mega. Well, James, um, the other thing I was going to ask you about was you've mentioned about those achievements, um, what you can achieve locally and what you're trying to achieve within the party too. But I mean, what do you actually hope to achieve with your political career in the long term? When, when you hang up your clipboard and your rosette uh, and maybe even your your boots as well at the same time from the reserves, um, looking back, what do you hope to achieve with that that service in your community? Um, I... You know what? I went into it a little bit naive without actually having a particularly clear plan. I, yeah, I, I delivered leaflets in my hometown of Crowborough um, and um, went to a couple of barbecues and was, you know, sort of um, poked in the chest and said, yeah, yeah, where, where do you want to go? Uh, I hadn't actually thought, thought about it much. Um, I mean, I've always considered whether it'd be interesting being an MP, always thought about it, but never really in any depth um then i moved up when i got a new job moved up to tommy Wells, which is only just up the road um and um got elected but what happens as i was going around knocking on doors i i had some core messages that i wanted to push out about what we wanted to do a lot of it was very local stuff that the majority of listeners won't be interested in but <laughs> there were a few things that came back time and time again um one was why does Tommy Wells not have a Waitrose? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not really in my power to grant that one. Um, but the other was I I don't think this street is safe for my kids to play on with the way, way cars come through here. And initially, I was like, well, actually, to be honest, that's that's county business. Borough doesn't deal with that sort of stuff. And I thought, actually, this is this is a big concern this is a lot of people saying this to me and it's not um it, it, it it's not people being over dramatic um i've had residents phone me up and break down in tears on on, on the line about the, the the roads outside their houses um and about speeding and about the danger particularly to children and so i went from sort of sidelining that and saying well, it's not really that's a county business it's not really my issue to thinking this is actually something we need to get fixed and we do whatever we can do. Um, and that's where the idea for the new risk register came. So I think um, for me personally, trying to make um, those residential streets as safe as, as safe as we can, um, recognising the restrictions of budgets and yeah, the fact that cars have got to go somewhere, um, I'm not anti-car, um, that's a big that's a big goal um the other one is i uh, about a year after i was i suppose about a year after i was elected i was made chair of the local party um so for me uh and actually if you're certainly if you're an ex-staff officer um or field grade officer um and you join your local party wherever it is i suspect you'll find yourself in an administrative role pretty quickly um um so for me uh, there's a, a lot of it is getting um getting the local party um, processes sorted. You know, we spent a long time as a small party. Uh, we were punished after the coalition. So, yeah, we, we lost members. Now we're building back up. We, we, yeah, we credibly could, yeah, we credibly probably will be running the council um, in our own right, you know, in the next two, three years. 
um, and therefore we need to get all the you know we need to get beyond the pro you know the practice of being as one of my friends says you know local politics being something that 12 consenting adults do in private we need to get in get the structures get the formats and you know uh, and, and make that a, 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 an effective force and that's that's one thing that i i've set myself a goal of the end of next year to really have everything in place um uh and um you, you may you may you may not be surprised to note that um the local party standing orders are now in JSP 101 format. Um. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Transferable skills left, right and center of this one. Uh, but no, James, um, it's amazing to be able to sit down with a fellow tiger, the first of the veterans in politics podcast. And, and also to, to hear, to talk about local government and talk up local government as well, uh, because it's something it's the, it's the most visible and closest part of politics around us. So the more veterans, that stand up and serve again the better yeah but, absolutely but before we close out is there anything else you'd uh any piece of advice that you'd like to give out to someone listening that might think do you know what that local government i might give it a go i think um wherever you sit on the spectrum on the political spectrum you know join your local party go out with them knock on doors talk to residents and uh, yeah, the issues where you live will not necessarily be the same as the issues where I live. Um, but listen to that and then just think, what what can I do about that? If I was a councillor, or even if I wasn't a councillor, what could I what could I do about that? And actually, if you've got a good idea, it probably is quite a good idea, and it's probably worth fighting for. There we go worth fighting for james thank you so much for joining us today it's been absolute hoot chatting and uh we'll speak soon thank you Cheers. all right thanks a lot thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you